There is a warning in here, not just for Israel and Judah, but for us. The Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today, we've got Eric. I'm here. And we've got Tracy. Good morning. And we've got Karen. Straggling in. I'm here. <laughs> it has been a morning to get together. Gosh, Tracy's recovering from surgery and, and Karen's computer was being stupid. And uh, well, finally, we're, we're, all, we're all together, though. We're here. And uh, it's it's good to be here talking with everybody. We were just been we've just been kind of sitting here talking about some of the struggles of the world and and um, oh, just the just the hurdles that we seems like we have all the time between COVID and kids going back to school and you know I've caught a little cold off of my kids who I'm sure my youngest brought at home and and uh, you know Tracy's surgery and Karen's computer and Karen's move and job search and. Oh my gosh, it's just uh I don't know. It's been it's been an interesting time of hurdles for everybody, not just us. I'm sure our listeners are are feeling a bit of that too. So I hope that uh I hope that the podcast here serves as a little bit of a ray of sunshine. Uh except you know, we're going to be talking about a lot of destruction and stuff today. So <laughs> so you know, uh, I can honestly say I don't I think ever in my life have I been considered a ray of sunshine. So this is great. This is like a whole new phase of my life right now. <laughs> Karen, the ray of sunshine. No, nope, that's not that's not a thing that that goes before me into a room. Not I'm at try, all. I'm trying to help you out here, Karen. Oh. <laughs> she's not your typical Karen. She's Karen, ray of sunshine. That's right. <laughs> okay well we've got boy i don't know this was an interesting reading this week we were reading let's see second chronicles chapter 28 second Kings 16 through 17 and isaiah 13 through 17 now the the chronicles and kings chapters kind of they serve to set as kind of the backdrop of of where isaiah is coming from and just to review isaiah has been laying down some uh, little smackdown on everybody as as uh, the kingdoms are starting sort of starting to wind down things aren't going aren't going great they're not going to go great for them um and we start in second chronicles 28 with king ahaz now king ahaz is sitting right there this is king ahaz of judah but he's sitting there right at almost the end of the reign or the um the kingdom of israel which is, as you recall, the Israel Israel split off from Judah, essentially taking ten tribes with them, and and uh, Judah kept hold of Judah and Benjamin, and there was a little bit of intermingling there, but not a whole lot. But we're getting we're getting right down to the end of of Israel here, and uh, Ahaz was twenty years old when he when he took the throne. He reigned for sixteen years, but we're told that he did not do what was right. Um, he had images for the Baals, and he was burning incense in the valley of uh, the son of Hinnom. Um, he burned his own children in the fire. He sacrificed and burned incense at all the high places. And, and I mean, this is, he was not, he just wasn't a, not, not a good guy at, at all. And this is, remember, we're bouncing back and forth here. We're at 2 Chronicles 28. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and this is this is Judah. These are the these are the ones who uh, I'm using air quotes here stuck with God. Uh, end of air quotes because Ahaz was absolutely not doing what God had asked him to do. Uh, in right. fact, and we see this now. There's a parallel in this in Second Kings, uh, chapter sixteen and seventeen. This is one of those places in the Bible where we get um, kind of one dimension of the story in in uh, one book, and elsewhere we get a different dimension of the story. Sometimes they're almost clones of each other, copy-paste, if you will, and sometimes they're a little bit different. This one has some elements of both the story of and the downfall of Ahaz. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, you know, I had to I had to really do some back and forth. Like you said, it's it's back and forth between the Chronicles and the Kings. And I had to do some back and forth to piece this together because it, sometimes there were things that almost seemed to contradict each other. Because I was noticing um, if we stick in, see, I jumped to Second Kings here for a second, and I guess I wouldn't necessarily have to. But you've got um, Resin of Syria and Remaliah of Israel besieging Jerusalem. And you guys help me out if I get my if I get my things out of order here because like I said it was it was tricky. Um, Syria had captured Elath. They had uh, they they drove from men of Judah from it. They um, and that area was now occupied by Edomites. Now Ahaz he's asking Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria for help. Now in Second Kings. Uh, chapter 16 says that he gives him gold and silver from the temple but then uh and that uh Sirius then took Damascus and killed King Rezin of Syria no boy I got this all I got my notes all kinds of, see it so I'm saying I have my notes all kinds of goofed up the reason I'm having I'm struggling here is because if you looking at um second Kings 16 when you have Ahaz sending to Assyria for help, he gives all this stuff to Tiglath-Pileser, but Tiglath-Pileser wouldn't help. But yet he killed Rezin of Syria and took Damascus. So I don't know exactly how that went down. Did you guys have any insight there that I'm missing out on? Well, the core of the story here is Ahaz has been leading Judah into sin. Mm-hmm. And as a result, God has withdrawn his hand of protection. Mm-hmm. And so... Israel and Judah have troubles from every dimension. All of their mm-hmm. old enemies and some brand new ones show up to cause them troubles. Ahaz turns to everything except God. Yeah, he does. He he tries everything except asking God for help. There's there is not a repentance here. Um, there is a continual pretension of serving God. But there is not an actual serving of God. And so uh, Ahaz reaches out to Tiglath. And in Second Chronicles, it makes it sound like Tiglath doesn't really help much at all. But in Second Kings, we find out that Tiglath at least pushes back another army. But he doesn't really. It, it's kind of like, well, do you want to get punched with somebody's left hand or their right hand? So you get <laughs> two bullies fighting and one of the bullies kind of beats up the other bully and then continues to bully the per- <laughs> the other yeah. person. Uh, so, so Judah is still under the gun here. And in, in second Kings 16, we see that Ahaz is just, man, it's like, he's never heard of the God of, of, uh, 
of his forefathers because what he does is he thinks, oh, Tiglath um, beat up the other bully who was bullying me. And so that must mean his God is strong. And so he sends emissaries to Assyria and they get a blueprint of this foreign altar and Ahaz builds it in the courtyard of the of the temple in Jerusalem. Literally, he moves <laughs> moves the 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 altar of sacrifice out of its place, puts this heathen altar in its place, and starts sacrificing on his own. He cuts up the. Uh, remember, we talked about the Sea of Bronze. That's the big um, big laver that held the water for ceremonial washing. It was a big bowl on the back of uh, bronze bowls. Well, he cuts that all apart and moves it off to the side and. He's just doing everything. And basically what it boils down to is he's trying to copy the nations around him, but he keeps, now this is really an interesting thing. He keeps the altar of the Lord kind of as a little magic um, talisman, as a, oh, as just a kind of way so that he can, well, if I need to go see, um, what do they call it? Um, the word divination. He was going to keep the altar of God just for divination purposes. He wasn't going to offer sacrifices on it. So that's what Ahaz does. And they're all just that, that, that divination thing is uh, in second uh, Kings 16, uh, 15. It's just all falling apart. It's just all falling apart. And in the midst of this, to make it even more confusing, Israel goes to war against Judah and in Second Chronicles 28.8, the men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, daughters. The, the, so the Israelite, the ten tribes, go to war against Judah and Benjamin and take 200,000 prisoners. And it, it, this is in addition to Judah being beat up by these other bullies. And an interesting thing happens. Uh, in 28.9... A prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded, and he went to meet the army that came to Samaria. So they're returning victorious from beating up Judah and said to them, behold, because of the Lord God of your fathers who was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand, which is a summary of what's happened to Judah here. Mm -hmm. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me and send back the captives from your relatives from whom you've taken them for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. It's like, yeah, you were you were punishing them for me, but you went too far. You're not supposed to be taking these as captives. And an interesting thing happens is that the warriors from Israel, they just leave. They leave all their captives and all that. They just walk away and leave everybody prisoners. And then there are some chiefs of, uh, is of Israel a.k.a. Samaria, who come and basically feed and clothe these captives and send them home. Yeah, that was an interesting little little thing there of um, God saying, yeah, OK, you're you're doing what I want to want it done, but not like that. That was not the way to do that. And uh, yeah, and, and those Israelites get to go home. That was an well, interesting story. I didn't, I didn't read it like that at all. What I read it like was. God used them to exact punishment on some of his children who needed punishing. 
but then he stopped them from taking it as far as a natural victor would have because they weren't actually a natural victor. They were his arm of punishment. What did he call the Assyrians at one point, his sword arm or whatever like that? Mm-hmm. So like he sent them to do a job for him, but whereas human victors would have taken it to the nth degree, he stopped them and said, you're not actually any better. Stop now. Give some grace. Yeah. Because because you know that you yourself need grace and these are your brothers. Yeah. yeah. He says that to, God actually says that to uh, Babylon. Mm-hmm. And then he says that to the, the Medes. He says, yeah, you do a thing, but don't go too far. And mm-hmm. they all go too far. And he says, okay, well, you went too far. And so mm-hmm. you got to reel it back in. He says this to all these people. And maybe there's a lesson in that for us is that maybe... Maybe we need to speak a word of uh, warning or caution. We were speaking about this before the podcast started, just some issues in the world and church and life. And how much do you say and how much do we just keep on steamrolling? And I think God was quite clear here that there's there's something needs to be done and said and happen, but not too much. See, and I looked at it kind of the same way, and then I also looked at it to the part of, as you see how they're declining so much that that the king was on his path and wasn't, wasn't doing what he was supposed to, leading the nation astray, but then you also have a small group of men that are like, okay, we're done. We've already made the Lord mad. We're not going to go forward with this, too. So I wonder if it's—I I felt like it was still reminding us that, you know, there's still a pocket of people doing— in the midst of everything bad, there's still the willingness to do good. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, that, and that shows up. Remember, uh, just like in the time of Elijah, this shows up in the people who were famous for doing the wrong thing. This is the nation of Israel, who for the longer than Judah had been on the wrong path. And still there are people who stood up and said, no, this is, this is wrong, and we're going to do something about it. Yeah, that's a good point, Tracy, is that even in the midst of, of all this apostasy, there are still uh, people who want to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good thing. I mean, how did, uh, is it um, <laughs> Mr. Rogers? I think it was Mr. Rogers. He said, look for, look, look, look for the helpers. Yeah. Because, you, know? you know, we we all have those times when when things are, are looking down and, and uh you might feel like just in complete despair, but it seems like there's always, there's always somebody who will help if you look for them. Otherwise, otherwise you could be looking at the world and thinking that everything is always bad all the time for you and, and, and you're in utter despair. But if you look for the helpers, you'll, you'll probably be okay. Well, ultimately all of this, ends with the the death of Ahaz. I mean, you know, he like like Eric said, and man, he's just been basically just disassembling, practically just disassembling the uh the temple. It is just amazing. I mean, such a national treasure for them and he's just kind of taking it apart piece by piece and giving stuff to here and there and moving things around and 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 putting different things yeah, in their place, but but um ultimately he he dies and he ends up getting uh, succeeded by his son Hezekiah. So that puts us in our context then of where Isaiah is t- 
talking now. And now when I say context, because we're going to be talking about a lot of things that it seems to me haven't happened yet in what we've read, because there's a lot of talk about Babylon and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the spoiler alert is that eventually Judah gets carried away by Babylon, <laughs> but um, this is going to be several kings down the road. So this is like Isaiah saying, okay, look, you're, you, you all have to understand, and he's been talking to Israel and Judah through all of this. You're going to have to understand that you're not in a good place, and uh, there's going to be things coming down the, down the road for you. Yeah, leading right into that, 2 Kings 17, uh, 13. It, it basically just goes, all these things are, the wheels are coming off, they're skidding off the road, it's just, they're headed for the ditch. Uh, 2 Kings 17, 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and seer, saying, quote, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. End quote. That's what God said to them, that even in spite of all this, God is still reaching out to them. And that's what that's what all these prophets were reading, Micah and Isaiah and it's really fascinating if you look at the uh, at the the bulk of the uh, the minor and even the major prophets. It is God calling to His people to say, "Turn around." He's saying, "Turn around, turn around, turn around." He does it over and over and over. There's a lot of literature in here where God is trying to reach His people. Sadly, historically, Second uh, Kings seventeen fourteen continues, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been. They despised the statutes and the covenant he made with their fathers and the warnings he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. There is a warning in here, not just for Israel and Judah, but for us. Is Again, before the podcast started, we were talking, saying, you know, really, the only way through for us today is to keep our eyes individually uh, on Jesus. The temptation is to say, now, you need to make sure you're doing X, Y, and Z, but Really, we need to make sure we are doing X, Y, and Z and keeping our eyes on Jesus. Um, so mm-hmm. th- with that context of um, of this, there's two little points in Second um, Kings 17 that I think I just want to touch on. Is in Second Kings 17.24, he takes the, the, the citizens of Israel, the Israelites in Israel, captive. I'm going to read this. 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sepaphim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So what we've got going on here is he took the people, think of it like a, like a chessboard. He took the people off of one side and then put his players back where the other. He took out the Israelites, took them away, and he put in his own people a foreign people into the land of Israel. So keep this in mind as we flash forward to Jesus day, you've got the Jews who think that they're vastly superior because they're not like the Samaritans. And in many ways, they're not because the Samaritans, AKA Israel, this gets complicated, are in fact a mixed race. They are some Jews left over from the 10 tribes, but they're also these people from Babylon, who got replaced there. And this is a very fascinating thing, is that these people get put in the land of Israel, 
and word gets back to the king of Assyria. He says, oh, hey, look, we got all kinds of problems going on there. We got wild lions attacking and killing people. And that's probably because the people you put there from Assyria don't know the laws of the gods of the land. That's uh, verse 26. The nations that you carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Because they, they, these Old Testament people believe very much that each region had its own God. Remember, we have Naaman who says, I want to take some dirt from mm -hmm. Israel back with me because the God of the land will come with the dirt. And I get to worship the God of the land because I have the dirt with me. And so the king of Assyria, this is just blows my mind. The king of Assyria says, yeah, we need to teach God to these people. So uh, one, let's get a priest out of you guys that I have pulled into exile and go back home and teach my people, the foreigners, how to worship your God. You've got a foreign king instituting the teaching of God's ordinances, whereas the God's king of the land wouldn't do that. I mean, if that's not irony. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, so through all of that, um, yeah, Israel, this is the point where Israel gets you said they get carried off israel is at this point israel is gone at least uh as oh. we know as we know those 10 tribes they're gone they they never do they never do come back like they were oh. and and um so yeah definitely they definitely get the brunt of this and well when you know you go through all the things we've been talking uh generation after generation after generation and they're just um it, it's been a whole lot of did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah, let's just say it that way. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and they're gone. All right. So we get into Isaiah chapter 13 now. And a proclamation is now given against Babylon, which is like, like I was saying before, is interesting because nobody's been carried off to Babylon yet at this point. I mean, I think we are still OK. So we've talked about Hezekiah one. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. After Hezekiah, there's seven kings left of Judah before before this stuff happens. So I'm, I'm a little curious. Those seven going, those seven going rapid succession. They yeah. kind of rise and fall quickly. Yeah, yeah. But this is prophecy. This is this is, and this is a really interesting thing. Is that Isaiah here? Is like you said, Matt. He is prophesying things that have not happened. Uh huh. I mean, it, Babylon isn't isn't even really on the radar of Judah as a threat. Yeah, it's they're they're probably thinking Babylon. Who we got nothing to worry about with those guys. We're worried about the Philistines. And God's like, yeah, no, <laughs> the Philistines are they're, they're going to get swatted like a fly. You're, you're going to have bigger problems. And this is an interesting thing: is that God is prophesying about Babylon before it happens. And this is really interesting. We, in previous podcasts, we talked about the different layers that we can look at prophecy in. Like it's the immediate literal application of things, that it can be a later literal application of the prophecy. It can be uh, a later kind of a metaphorical application, and it can be dipping in and out between those. And when we're talking about Babylon, it's really important that we realize that Babylon plays a role in prophecy as a symbol 
as well as a literal political force of the time. Don't believe me? You can look at uh, prophecies in Daniel and especially Revelation, which is set way in the future. We have Babylon talked about again and again and again. We're like, wait a minute, I thought they were gone. You know, Daniel chapter two, the statue of gold. Well, there's the head of gold and then the shoulders and uh, chest of silver. We're way past all that. But Babylon is used as a symbol also. And so it's really tricky as we, as the words Babylon show up, especially in Isaiah 14, we got to think, hmm, what could this mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it begins. See, it, it, it's interesting to me because it's it's basically starts talking about the downfall of Babylon, like you say, before it's even really raised up in our in our eyes at this point. And God is going to talk about God is going to raise an army, he calls them my mighty ones, those who rejoice in my exaltation. And I, I just put a little note here. Is this literal? Is this metaphorical? Um because I don't really, I don't really know, um, because you know there is a there is another army that eventually comes and takes out Babylon. Uh, but this almost sounded to me, this almost sounded to me sort of end times kind of you know people that will are going to rise up against all the things that Babylon stands for, all the corruption and and whatnot. There's a footnote. What, verse Isaiah 13, 1 to 4 seems kind of literal of the Babylon of ancient times. Mm-hmm. But it's a very interesting thing at the end of verse 5. Uh, it says they come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. I was like, oh, wait a minute. The Babylonians come from the end of the heavens? And the Lord and his weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. And there's a footnote there in the translation. That what that means is destroy the whole earth. Mm-hmm. And that shows up again at the end of chapter of verse nine to destroy sinners from it. It is the earth. And so we start uh, verse six of chapter 13 in Isaiah. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. Boy, when you when we start reading verses six to 16 and we get day of the Lord, this talk is talking about. It seems to be talking about, or we could see this as, this is, this is more universal and final than, you know, the Babylonian invasion of the land of Judah. Yeah. Well, this whole thing sounded to me more like it was against Babylon rather than. Oh yes. Maybe yeah. I maybe I misunderstood something you said there, like in verse. Um, Oh, where was that? The, the, from the from the ends of the heavens. That was in verse five. Oh, gosh, five. Yeah, and I I, I maybe mis misheard you there because I was thinking you were saying that the it was the Babylonians who were coming from the ends of the heavens. No, and that's what I'm saying that we. Yeah. This is poetic, and it's kind of like, oh, I'm with you. I got it. We're talking about the Babylonians, and then all of a sudden, it's like, well, wait a minute. How, how are they coming from the ends of the heavens? And then it's then it's called the day of the Lord, not the day of the Babylonians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, yeah, this is all being raised up against them. Yes. And, and that's that's what's happening in, in chapter 13. So we're already yes. talking about uh, about the downfall of Babylon. Yes. Um, just when it's all we're, we're just we're just getting the idea that they're going to be the ones who come and take them. And we're already hearing about their downfall. It's a time machine. <laughs> this yeah. poetry in, in Isaiah 
if you don't view it as a time machine with the ability to just pop in and out of the future to the past to the near future, it's absolutely baffling. And I think it it's not to say that it's unfathomable, but boy, t- take caution here before you build a theology based on one verse out of this, because it's yeah. tricky territory. I yeah. noticed that time and time again, as I was reading through the Isaiah chapters, it was like, it was, it was, um, it's like, well, what generation are we talking about? Are we talking about now? Are we talking about the end of the world? Are we talking about the great scope of the universe? Are we talking about good versus evil? And it seemed like all of that was intertwined and it was impossible to read it as like one local scenario. Yeah. Yeah, because we chapter verse 17, behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them. It's like, wait a minute, all of a sudden now we're not talking about the eternal powers of the universe fighting. It's it's okay, yeah, the Medes are gonna come and the Medes actually defeat literally the literal Babylonians. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you got that 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 interesting back and forth and having to keep your, your brain open with that. Uh, interestingly, it, it talks about how in verse 20, it says it'll never be inhabited again. Yeah. And wild animals will reclaim it, which is what happens if you have a place that isn't inhabited. The nature comes in and takes takes it over. And this is Babylon, to, to mm-hmm. throw context in there. This is this was a huge, huge, huge city, was one of the wonders of the world. And before Israel, and before Judah's even kind of aware of them, God's saying, yep, they're going to be amazing, they're going to take over, and they're going to disappear. And at the time, to predict the removal of Babylon, literal, the city of Babylon, which has metaphorical implications for the spiritual Babylon, to say that it will be knocked down and never inhabited again, keep in mind, is that these ancient people would raid, that's why they would raid ruins. Because why go out and cut new stones yourself, just go get the ones from the last civilization and build your houses right there out of their old rubble, right? Except God is saying that's not going to happen with Babylon. It will never be rebuilt. And that is a literal, factual thing that has happened today. Yeah. Um, I looked on Google Earth and looked up Babylon, where the yes. city of Babylon was. It is shocking. It was a wonder of the world, and it is a total nothing land. Today, you can look at it yourself. Uh, Saddam Hussein was going to rebuild it because he wanted to be the new new Nebuchadnezzar, and he was going to rebuild Babylon. Well, good luck working against what God said is not going to happen. Yeah, yeah we, uh, we we saw what happened to him. <laughs> not going to happen. Well, it's, it has, I, I have done that before. I've looked up Babylon on Google Earth just to check it out. And and uh, Hussein went so far as to build a, a palace nearby, didn't he? It was some kind of like big thing that he built overlooking the ruins. But then he went there with the full intention of rebuilding the city itself and just never did. Didn't happen. So, nope. right. 14. Wow, this one was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this. So, hey, I So Eric texted us and he was like, hey, if you have a Bible commentary, read you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, I just moved and I may have a Bible commentary at some someplace in my boxes, but no place that I could put a hand on. So do you mind sharing, Eric? Well, let's get into it because there's a lot in here. Yeah. So we get the, the, the chapter begins with the title of Mercy on Jacob. And I really I love this because it's like after we're talking about how, you know, we know that 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 
everybody's getting taken captive. We know now that Babylon is going to fall, but this is God will still choose Israel. So we remember back the promise that he gave. There's always, there would always be someone on the throne um, of the line of, uh, well, specifically to David, but for that to happen, for that to happen, there would have to be people, you know, still around. Um, but not only will he still choose Israel, but others are, will return with the Israelites and they will become their servants. So the ones who took them captive essentially will become their captives, which is an interesting turnaround to happen. Yeah, now, just oh. keep, keep in mind, just as we read through this, that again, to emphasize to our listeners and to us too, is that just imagine some, I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to, is some sci-fi thing where people can teleport. And they just poof, they're here, poof, they're there, and they can just teleport through time, even easier than back to the future, okay? Isaiah 14 is doing this all the time. Like Matt said, it starts off with, and the Judah, you know, I mean, uh, Jacob, it says, will be favored of God again. we've, We've skipped past their captivity and their return, and we're seeing their glorious future. And their captivity hasn't even happened yet. You talk about a lot of time travel in a few verses. Well, it goes on to talk about how Israel is going to have a proverb against the king of Babylon. And, you know, it goes through some poetry there to kind of to, to kind of give that picture. Um, but essentially it starts out how the oppressor has ceased. Um, he's become the oppressed and no one comes to his aid and the grave welcomes him. Death takes him just like it has taken every king before him. So, so this, um, you know, the, this notion that, um, you know, the way I'm reading that, any, any the bullies, you know, you have the bullies, uh, eventually they get theirs. And that's kind of what's being said here, I think, is that this, uh, this king of Babylon, who's going to come and take them away, um, he's eventually going to come to nothing. He'll be brought low just like everybody else, because the fact of the matter is everybody dies. And but in his, you know, we know we know looking forward, if we've studied the things and looked at history at all, we know that, well, as it was predicted in the, in the last chapter there, the, that the Medes can come and take him over. You know, I think it to me, I just put down that nothing is forever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's always good for us to keep in mind. And, you know, sometimes things last longer than we want them to. And I suppose there's some people who have seen nothing but oppression in their lives. But um, but it, it that it just can't last forever. It just can't. Something something will over something will always come to overcome that in time eventually. Now, probably, at least in my mind, the most interesting. Oh, go ahead, Eric. Well, depending on where you're going here, is this, um, are we going to uh, verse 12? Yeah. Okay, so, and that's where this is kind of a uh, an envelope for that, is that Matt read a very interesting verse that we shouldn't skip. My ESV is, I generally like it, but this is one place where I think it translates a word that gives us a maybe a not the correct um, context for this. Verse 4 in the ESV says, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Well, the the word taunt is um, the Hebrew mashal. This is from Bible commentaries. I'm not this smart, okay? Um, Is normally translated as proverb or parable. 
So most translations call it a proverb or parable. And this is interesting because this is, this is, imagine this, if I say, let me tell you a story. If I start with that, you in your mind right now are like, well, no, wait a minute. Is he telling me like a story to make a point here? Or is he revealing history to me? Or is he doing prophecy? You don't know that, do you? If I, but if I tell you, let me tell you a story. You're already queued up to listen like, hmm, this is going to be something interesting. And how should we take it? Right? Yeah. And if we look at this as a parable, really important. Then the rest of all this poetry here in four all the way through 26, if we look at this as a parable, and parables, you see, could be applied in many different places. This yeah. becomes super important because Matt and, and, and Tracy talked about this. These things don't last forever. And Babylon comes up and then Babylon goes away. Babylon, let's not forget, is the symbol of apostate religion, government, the things that are opposed to God in end times. Mm -hmm. And it shows up in Israel. I mean, Isaiah, it shows up in Daniel. It shows up in Revelation a lot. And so if we look at this and we say, ah, this is a parable about Babylon, maybe spiritual Babylon as well as the literal Babylon, what can we learn from this? And as we look at this and we get right to where Matt's going to go and take it from here, Matt, we land in verse 12, which if we're thinking about this as literal Babylon, it would be very confusing. We're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think I think you have I think you have a little bit of literal Babylon here, but you also have some how do I want to put it metaphorical talk about the king of Babylon as potentially um well satan yeah verse 12 how you are fallen from heaven O lucifer son of the morning um now interestingly that word lucifer this is the only place in the bible you find it it is uh translated from a hebrew word halal which um comes from the word halal which means to be clear or to shine so you know we've uh, this is one of those places where I like to point out that sometimes our traditions play out a little more than what the Bible really means. And they've, we've, but we've attributed the name Lucifer to Satan where really it's kind of more, this is more of a descriptive term than it is a proper noun, if you will. Uh, that word Lucifer was put in later by translators. But when you let's look, read the context of this here, you can see how this it really does seem like this is probably exactly who we're talking about, because now we're talking about someone who has um, fallen from heaven. Now, if you're going to look at this as the king of Babylon, you can see how that metaphorically can talk about him as well, because he the 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 the, the text is talking about someone who wanted to be great and tried to set themselves up to be great, but ultimately fell. Yep. And and so you can see this with the king of Babylon as well, where he's going in and he's taking captives from everywhere and propping himself up and 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 whatnot. But well, don't forget, wasn't the king of Babylon that whole like you, O king, are the head of gold bit? Yep. 
Oh, yeah. So, and, and his response to that dream and hearing that there was another kingdom coming after him was to make an entire statue from his dream of solid gold. Like, uh-uh, I'm not the head of gold. I'm the thing. Look at me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to rule yep. until the end of time. Now, everyone yep. show up and bow down. So there was definitely, like, a king-ruler a king complex going on there. Yeah. Yeah. But if we're also going to uh, account this as being, or if we're going to attribute this as account of of what happened in heaven to Satan, uh, we can see that as well. Because um, this is talking about someone who wanted to be like God, wanted to be in the place of God, thought that he could do the things that God did and do them just as well or maybe even better. And this is essentially saying, ah, you thought this was going to happen, but look at you now. You, you, you got everybody all riled up. You got everybody uh, worried about you. And now you've been cast down. So I've Um, got, I've got this parallel Bible. And so when it comes to really sort of poetic or descriptive verses, I get a kick out of reading the four versions side by side. I've got two translations and two paraphrases. So the message is one of the paraphrases. And in verse 12, it says, what a come down this. O Babylon, day star, son of dawn, flat on your face in the underworld mud, you, famous for flattering nations. Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, okay, then. (laughs) Yeah. But Lucifer, I've got I've got a little note, a footnote that says that the word Lucifer just means day star. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's there's some there's some speculation that all it might have even been attributing him to. Well, you know, the the morning star or uh, Venus, Venus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and, you know, just a comparison as a comparison there, not maybe not literally. But um, but yeah, that that name, that name Lucifer has gotten has, has like become the quote unquote name of the fallen angel. But um, seems like maybe not so much. I don't know. I think it's that, not that, that important. Yeah, back to what Tracy said, is that this is kind of on whichever level you read it on. It says Babylon. Now, when we say Babylon, we can think spiritual Babylon. We can think the literal Babylon. We can think the future powers of uh, Babylon. We can think of it as uh, Satan's kingdom, because that's kind of how Babylon is portrayed in the book of Revelation. It doesn't last. It shows up. It puts God's people under subjugation. It goes badly for God's people for a time. And then God shows up and says, yeah, okay, that's enough. And we see this happen in Daniel's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his dream in Daniel chapter two. Uh, God eventually shows up and says, yeah, that's enough. And in, in the book of Revelation, we see God shows up and says, yeah, that's enough. And here we see that this political power, again, there's all these different levels of which one is true. It's kind of like, yeah, all of them (laughs) at different (laughs) times and different points. They're all true is that literal Babylon will eventually uh, release the uh, people from Judah and they will be free. So all these things are going on simultaneously. And we see there's an interesting level of of that Lucifer is, is a person is a is a being is a is a person with um with uh aspirations to be i mean it's 12 13 and 14 pretty interesting stuff that what he says 
I will ascend above the, this is 14. I will send above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. We have war in heaven. We see this pop up in Ezekiel also. We see, we've read um, the book of Job, and we see um, the accuser of the brethren show up in Job chapter one. Is that all of this stuff is happening behind the scenes in a in a literal way? And it has implications for us here on earth. So many, so many applications, implications that this is, this isn't just some, this being here, um, this day star, it's calling a person, not, not human. Okay. But um, is that this is seeking to put one's place above God or in God's place. And this is, that is the core of the problem. This is the core of the problem with, with uh, literal um, Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, of Judah, is that they put their desires, their plan, they're like, well, I'll take, we'll, we'll say we're worshiping God, but we're going to do it our way. We're just going to do our own thing. Is it doesn't work. It didn't work then. It it doesn't work now. Book of Revelation says it's not going to work in the future. It's God's way or the wrong way. Those are your two choices, really, is that you can come up with your best plan and you can call it whatever you want to. But in the end, it's either God's way, the way he said to do it, or the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even to the point where um, you get verses like 16 through 21 is basically saying that at, at the, it will come to a point where people are going to look and wonder that you ever had so much power. Yep. And there will be no legacy left. You'll have, n- when this is all done, there is going to be nothing left of your legacy. Nothing at all. Ultimately, Babylon is going to get destroyed. God's going to wipe it out. It kind of goes kind of quickly through through the next, uh, well, shoot, the next couple of chapters, really. But through the end of this chapter, you get Babylon gets destroyed. Assyria gets destroyed. Philistia gets destroyed. Um you know, there's little little details in there, but it's it's essentially they're well, bye bye. There wasn't a whole lot that I put down for notes on any of that because it was uh, it was essentially just they're they're going to be gone. Um, yep. it, do, it does say that you know I I'm assuming it's talking about God in verse 22, chapter 14, verse 22. For I will rise up against them, talking about Babylon. Um, but uh, yeah, they're just going to be. These the these oppressors these these kingdoms that have been thorns in the side of of the tribes of Israel for so long are finally they're they're just going to be gone. Yep. Just gone. If you want to read, read ahead for a spoiler alert? Revelation chapter twenty. Satan is literally he is gone. The false beast gone. The false prophet gone. Uh, death and Hades itself is gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you've got these poetic things going on, and eventually it all wraps up. And it's, you know, God is saying, in the end, I win, and my people will be victorious. And unfortunately, well, we, and I mean, when I say we, I mean humans, have have uh, had a struggle with understanding when these things are going to happen and to whom it's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And we've inserted ourselves in this. Karen alluded to this as King Nebuchadnezzar said, nope, I'm not going to go away. 
I'm not going anywhere. Well, we'll eventually read the book of Daniel, and God has a thing to say to Nebuchadnezzar about that. And God's ways end up happening, not man's ways. Yeah. We basically get two chapters devoted to the destruction of Moab, which I thought was interesting. This, you know, we've had. I mean, when we talk about Babylon getting destroyed, I mean, when it actually says Babylon is destroyed, we get like two verses. When we get Assyria destroyed, we get four verses. When Philistia is destroyed, we get uh, five verses. But then when it comes to Moab, for some reason, I was a little curious on why we get like two whole chapters about, about the destruction of Moab. The whole of Isaiah 15 is a proc- is the proclamation against Moab, basically saying that the cities are going to be destroyed, uh, the people of Moab are going to be in mourning, and the land will be desolate. Then you get into 16, again, it talks about Moab is going to be destroyed. Uh, the, Mo- the daughters of Moab will be like wandering birds thrown out of their nest. So, I mean, kind of, you know, the, the, they're just going to be like looking around, wondering what to do. Now, three and four, this was, I was trying to figure out what they're talking about. It talks about hiding the outcasts. Is this saying that Moab is going to be a place of outcasts? Is this saying that if the Moab, you know, hiding the the outcasts of the Moabites? I was a little unclear on exactly what was being said there. Um, I think that God is, remember, is is that when, kind of think of this as a bullseye. Okay, so you've got as far as nations go, is that God was very concerned with the the Israelites, and in the middle of that was the Judah people. Outside of this was, remember, the Moabites are related to the Israelites, because their children, correct me if I'm wrong here, Karen's got a good mind for this, is that Moab and Ammon were the sons of Lot, mm. who was the nephew of Abraham. So these are relatives of the Israelites. And kind of they go in concentric rings, you know, and and so as they get further and further from this core people, there's kind of less and less said about them. I mean, the Babylonians are like, yep, they're going to come, they're going to go. And, you know, the Philistines, like, yeah, they're going to eventually just disappear. Not much to say about them. Well, there is, but, there, but, but when it comes to the people that are closer to God's in his purposes, um, there's more time spent on them. You look how much time of this prophecy is spent on Israel and how much of it's spent on Judah is it's books and books of prophets saying, hey, mend your way. And when it comes to Ammon, maybe this is me. This is the theory because they are more closely related to Israelites. They get a little bit more um, verses, chapter time. They were cousins. Yeah. I kind of thought that too when I was looking at it. It didn't. It didn't seem like their offenses were any less, but for some reason there was a little bit of leniency. And also, I mean, their offenses were any less. That's kind of a strange line to draw because if you're wrong, you're wrong. And right. But he's t- calling them back, and I think he's still giving them advice. He's like, "Hey, grant justice. Yes. Um, make your shade like the height of noon. Uh, shelter the outcasts. Don't reveal the fugitive." Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them. Basically, this is God saying to whomever he's speaking to, that part I'm not sure about, but um, he's saying, hey, be people who, who stand for justice. 
If you've got somebody who needs your help, you owe it to them to help them. Yeah. That's how I read this is that God never really gives up on that. And to be clear to my earlier comment about how God's like people are at the center of this bullseye, their purpose was to spread the gospel and to be the branch through which the Messiah would come. It wasn't that, that God says this people is better than anybody else. He said, I've chosen you for a purpose. And unfortunately, we get to, and uh, as Jesus says over Jerusalem, he says, you know, your house is left to you desolate. You didn't know when you had your chance. We're going to move on. And later in the book of Acts, we see it's like, well, Israel was special, but they did not take up their special calling and so now it goes to someone else it left Mm. Um, that was their purpose not because god loves uh, ethnic jews any more than he loves anyone else it's just they had a special role to play they didn't do it god moved on yeah something you said there i think helped me figure out that context a little bit better because we're talking about verse four and you know let me let me just read it the way it says let my outcast dwell with you O Moab. be a shelter from them for the face of the spoiler for the extortioner is at an end devastation ceases the oppressors are consumed out of the land but then verse five came out to me pretty strongly but now i understand it seems like maybe it's in the in the context of verse four uh in mercy the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth and that one is capitalized so we're talking about god so it's it's like show this mercy when you show this mercy then that is how this throne of god is established yes through that through that mercy so that that helped me put that in into that context by by um when we when we when we show mercy that's the you know jesus always talked about the kingdom of god and sometimes people think that he's talking about heaven but i i think jesus is talking about how how we react now how we live now and i think that's what that's talking about right there is that in the mercy when you're showing mercy that's how that's how that throne is established yes it reminds me of um, amos chapter 5 24 but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream and micah we just read micah micah 6 8 he's shown you a man what is I can't find it here to look it up. What is right? What does it uh, say? Six, um, six through eight. Yeah, let's, it's um, to do justice and to love kindness. God's always been concerned about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in that verse five that you were just reading, Matt, it says, in love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. One from the house of David, one who is judging, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Like, <clears throat> the savior that's coming is all of those things. So can I, I'm going to take a broad sweep at this. Like I kind of noticed something in this week's reading of Isaiah and it made me flip back to where in chapter 10, which we already read, it starts off. So my Bible's got these bold, you know, sort of sectional titles to kind of call you out to the themes that are happening here. And that helps me that helps my brain make sense of things but like starting in chapter 10 you've got the lord's anger against israel followed by god's judgment on assyria followed by um the promise of the branch of of jesse followed by a prophecy against babylon prophecy against that one was long 
the Philistines, Moab, right? The things that we're reading now. And then Damascus, and then going ahead into the chapters we haven't read yet. It's Ethiopia, Cush, Egypt. Like it just keeps going. Like prophecy against Babylon again in 21, prophecy against Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem. It just keeps going. Tyre is out there. And then it goes directly from that to praise to the Lord, right? And by the time we get, so, and the reason I was thinking about this is because I heard a sermon this weekend about, that was based on the entire chapter of Isaiah 55. Now, we sometimes will focus in on parts of Isaiah 55, which I'm going to read here in a second, but this was actually the entire chapter. And it's like, and it starts off, like, in the wake of all of this garbage. Judgment on you, judgment on you, judgment on you, judgment on you. Everybody's fallen short, right? And we look towards the end of the world. We look in the books of Revel in the book of Revelation. We see the exact same thing. So there again, which story are we telling? But in in chapter fifty five, it starts off: Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Right. So in the wake of the God's blatant displeasure with race after race after race on earth, and I'm and I'm asking us and our listeners to think about this in terms of what was going on at the time and what is going on now. Right. So he goes on and on and on about this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Because looking ahead to the end of the earth, we know that there will, it says flat out, there will come a time when people are crying out for this stuff and they cannot find it. Why? Because God's patience is done with the earth. You know, judgment has been closed and the only thing that's left is for him to come back. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Okay, now here comes the famous part, but it's actually a continuation of this previous thought. So let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it blood, bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes, for, goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And then the grand finale. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown. For an everlasting sign, this will endure forever, right? So what I get out of this, if I go back to the broad strokes, if you want to call it Israel, there it is. It, you know, Israel in that era with the surrounding nations, there it is. 
if you want to call it America or whatever country you live in and the nations surrounding you, the modern world, there it is. You want to talk about the last moments of Earth's history? This is how it's going to wind up. There will be absolute judgment passed on nations, which are made up of individuals who may not deserve that judgment, but who get caught up in the storm. There will be judgment passed on individuals who have passed their probationary period. They have passed the time where it's a chance to forsake their ways, turn to God, you know, reach for his forgiveness and for his grace and step into his plan. All of that is going to go away. Ultimate judgment will be passed. And then, like uh, going back to that, uh, the statue that uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about where it had the head of gold. You know, that statue, we'll get to it when we read that. But that's a really interesting section. What is it, Daniel 2 or something like that? Where he, he dreams that and it lays out, that dream lays out all the major governments of the world from then until the end of time. And then guess what? While all those governments think they're standing there one after another, here comes a rock cut out without hands. It decimates everything on the earth. And from the dust comes up the kingdom of God that lives for that lasts forever. Right. Like this is a statement and a restatement and a restatement of the big plan that is happening on Earth. And God says over and over, like, if I say it, it's going to happen. Don't think that you can put a halt to this thing by more shenanigans or more efforts to sidestep it. We're past all that. And it's a little bit it's a little bit grim. And yet, if you've ever had a moment of dissatisfaction of looking around at the state of the world around you and how people treat themselves and how people treat each other and the way we have all lowered our expectations to where it seems like we're barely better than animals sometimes, that also just screams a huge promise of like, yes, bring it, make it better, fix it. We've tried everything we can here as little piddly humans. It ain't getting better. We need divine intervention. Or, as my friend is fond of saying, whenever she's feeling particularly exasperated with something that happens in the world, Jesus, come get me. I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I get to that point myself a lot of times. Just like, let's just be done with this. Let's just move on. But that's what we're reading. We're yeah. reading God setting out time after time. You, kingdom of whatever, you're done. You're done. You've reached your limits. You're done. Don't think I won't do it. Don't make me come back there. <laughs> if I do, you're going to regret. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like that's what, that's what we're in the middle of reading. And I know we only read a few chapters, but that's the big picture of what we're reading. It's the takedown of countries and nations and kings and individuals that have had their chance and they didn't take it. Yep. Dad finally had to pull the car over. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I will pull this car over and you and I will have a conversation on the side of the road and you will not like it <laughs> and you're not getting back in the car either <laughs> um, well that chapter basically ends I would be interested to know uh, the exact time frame of this but it says within three years the glory of Moab will be despised I don't know if that's it. within three years of this proclamation being made or or what but um given a definite time frame within three years the glory of moab will be despised then isaiah 17 is a proclamation against syria and israel 
starts out, Damascus is going to be destroyed. Uh, the cities of Aurora are going to be forsaken. The fortress of Ephraim will cease. These were all places that were seen as being very strong and very, they were very prideful of these places. And then verse four, at the same time, the glory of Jacob will wane. So that's, you know, that's sort of uh, an ominous, an ominous um, omen for the children of Israel who have felt like they were in such high esteem and such power for, for a long time. And their that pride we've been talking a lot over the last few weeks about how their pride is going to be gone talks about when a harvester gathers grain you know the, when when harvesters go in to take grain they they take it all generally speaking you know they go and they get everything and uh, they at least they get as much as they can um, but it says uh talks about how a few olives will be left so even though even though this smackdown is coming against Israel and Judah, it won't. They won't be completely wiped out. It's not like you're never, ever, ever going to hear again about Israel and Judah. Now we do know that, for the most part, those ten tribes, tribes of Israel, like we already talked about, for the most part, you. I don't think you would ever find today a pure blood from any of those tribes. I mean, that just isn't going to happen. Of course, you probably wouldn't from the other two by by now either. But um, but yet, but yet um, there is still some comeback for all of them. It says in that day, a man will look to his maker rather than to altars or the works of his own hands. Everybody that we've been reading about for so long, especially these kings have been looking so long at what they've accomplished, what they've done. And when we're talking about, you know, Ahaz earlier to the point where he's like, yeah, let's build a whole other art. Uh, uh, altar and set it in the temple um and he was looking at that as being something worthwhile or valuable which is was just amazing just just amazing not in a great way but amazing and then in verse 10 we get the reason why all of this is happening because you've forgotten the god of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold this is why all of this has to happen this is why Judah and Israel have to be have to be taken apart now. This is why uh, this is why all of this is happening is because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They you know all these nations now that God is having to come in and take out that was supposed to have been Israel's job. They didn't get that done, and they nobody's been paying enough attention to God and what He wants, and that's why. That's why they have to be taught a lesson now. Well, how did that go? You are a city on a hill. You are the salt of the earth. That's the mm-hmm. just their calling. I mean, it's our calling now, but originally it was it was you know Israel's calling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know the thing is that what we see is that um, when God called them out for this, and I think this is where it's, it's where it should strike really close to home. Is that you guys have wanted to be this i'm summarizing god speaking to israel and judah i wanted you to be different but what you wanted was to be like everyone around you yeah and that wasn't your purpose that was not your calling and to christians today i would say how how much of what we do fits in and complements what the world is doing versus 
saying, God, what do you want me to do and stand for you? Which, in the light of history, does not line up with, um, should I say, secular, heathen um, culture. It doesn't. And if what you do kind of lines up with that, then maybe that's a, an opportunity for some self-reflection. Yeah. Yep. And the chapter ultimately ends with... Basically, it says God's going to rebuke all of the roaring and rushing of the nations. And I just sort of took that to be that all of this pomp and circumstance that they all these individual, you know, we've been talking about literal nations here that they have been they've been they've been flaunting against each other and against uh, against God's people and God's people as well. Or the people who are supposed to be God's people, maybe I should say, have all been just flaunting all of their all of their uh their achievements and the things that they were valuing and all that stuff. And God is not going to have any of that. He's, he is, uh, he, he is up against all of that now and he's going to take it all out. Yeah. Just a, just a little, little shiny thing here as we're walking past. And I think we should make note of it because it will show up again later in the Bible. It says these nations, this is uh, chapter, chapter 17 of Isaiah verse 12. Uh, they thunder, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters, many waters. And we'll see this in prophecy later, is that there are things that show up out of the sea. Mm. And this is our little bit of a clue as to what do you mean that comes out of the sea? Um, Isaiah, which itself is a book of prophecy, is saying... It's the peoples. It's the roar of many peoples and nations. It's it's a thing that later will give us a little bit of a clue. Yeah, yeah, good catch on that. With that, yeah, you're 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 right on there. Alrighty. Well, I think that's probably going to wrap up our discussion this week. Uh, next week we will be reading Isaiah chapters eighteen through twenty-two. So a little, little more straightforward reading than what we had had this past week. But for, so for our next episode, we will be discussing chapters Isaiah chapters 18 through 22. While you're waiting for that, you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know if you have any questions or comments. Uh, look for us on Facebook. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast. We look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for listening.